And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament passage of Habakkuk. The Old Testament passage of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is, of course, found in the Minor Prophets section, the most neglected section of the Word of God. A lot of people don't even realize some of the things of the Minor Prophets. If you were to ask people to name all the books of the Bible in the order, they do pretty good until they get to the Minor Prophets section, and then it kind of jumbles together until they hit the New Testament once again. But I love the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets are called Minor Prophets not because they're less than any of the major prophets, but just because the size of the book is smaller. Basically, you could say the Minor Prophets have a major message, and they have a very important message, and I love a whole bunch of these Minor Prophets, Habakkuk being one of the top. I love the book of Habakkuk. And so, as you find your way, if you're looking for it, it's right next to Nahum, if that helps you out. But the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk, if you find your way to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you turn the other way, you go to Malachi, Zechariah, Hegariah, Haggai, sorry, Zephaniah, and then Habakkuk. So the book of Habakkuk, and notice with me in chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of Habakkuk, chapter 1 and verse 1. The Word of God says this, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For the spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which, will, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Habakkuk? The book of Habakkuk, chapter 1 and verse number 5, the phrase, I will work a work in your days. I will work a work in your days. And maybe if you wouldn't mind, let me rearrange the title a little bit and explain to you about the God of history. The God of history. And if you wouldn't mind, let's talk to that God right now. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, I'm just asking that you would just show yourself unto us. Reveal yourself. And Lord, it's been a crazy day. Personally, a lot of things going on. But Lord, these folks didn't come to hear me. They came to hear from you. And I'm praying that they would see you and they would see you high, holy and lifted up. They would see what you can do and they could see the amazing God that you truly are. I'm asking that as we study through this book really quick, that you would open it up in a special way and that you would uh, make the people go wow. And then maybe some of them would like to study this out a little bit more. But more importantly, Lord, let us realize that we can trust you and that you have everything well in hand. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You ever wonder about the phrase that sometimes Christians tell one another? That God is sitting on the throne. That God is sitting on the throne. What we mean by that is that God is actually sitting in His throne. That God is not pacing. He's not wandering around. He's not rubbing His head. He's not wringing His hands. He's sitting on the throne. When you take an airline trip, uh, they tell you as a tip that whenever you start hitting turbulence, that what you're supposed to do is that you're supposed to look at the stewardess or the steward eye or whatever you call those boys up there. and You're supposed to look at them and see if the, how they're responding. If you're in a plane and you hit a bunch of turbulence and they're still smiling and they're still serving uh, drinks and asking people, uh, you know, what kind of soda you want and all that type of stuff, you know you're fine. But whenever you hit turbulence and you see them turn pale and them run to the nearest seatbelt, you know you got some trouble. You just got to look up and see how they're responding. Well, when you look at our world, you look up towards God and you see how He is responding. If he, as long as He's sitting on the throne, you know everything's all right. You see, our God has never lost control. We've got an election year this year. And already the craziness has begun. But you know what? God is not worried. He's not fretting. He's not saying, how did this come to be? He's got everything well in hand. God is sitting on the throne. And so if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about this God who's sitting on the throne. And I want to start the book of Habakkuk here. And notice with me, as for context's sake, that we can see what's going on. Now, this setting of this book is about 600 B.C. Jerusalem is in dire straits. Israel has already been conquered. Jerusalem is left by itself. And God is preparing Jerusalem to be conquered. Now, Habakkuk doesn't quite know this. He's heard Jeremiah preaching and Ezekiel's preaching on the other side of the river uh, close to this time. But notice, if you wouldn't mind, in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou will not hear? Even cry out of thee unto violence, and thou will not save. Why dost thou not show, or why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Now, Habakkuk is a little bit different than the rest of the minor prophets. We know that there are 12 minor prophets. And the rest of the minor prophets address their book to a specific people or to a specific place. For example, to the burden of Edom, to uh, Jerusalem, to Israel, to Nineveh. And so they address them to a specific group of people. Habakkuk is a little bit different because it's not addressed to a person or to a people it is a recording of a conversation between God and the prophet Habakkuk. Now, the prophet Habakkuk is looking at his world at the time. He is looking at the things that are going on. In fact, notice with me in verse number uh, 
Two, it says that thou will not hear, even cry out of violence, and thou will not save. He says, I look around the world, and I look at all the violence, and all the death, and the destruction, and I say, God, where are you at? Verse number three, why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? He says, everywhere I look, there's sin, and I'm so brokenhearted because I see the world falling apart, and the drugs, and the things that are going on. Notice, for spoiling and violence are before me. There are those that raise up strife and contention. He says, I live in the world where people are fighting and they're arguing and they're building more of a, of a schism up where people are drawing up dividing lines and they're fighting and, and they're, it's just violence and it's horrible. He says, verse 4, wherefore the law is slack. He says, people don't even obey the law no more. They just break the law wherever they want. And if it does go to court, judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass the righteous. He says, there's more wicked people than there are righteous people. And so the courts don't make right judgment. Doesn't that sound like it's right off of our newspaper headlines? The courts don't even make right decisions anymore because there's more unrighteous people than there are righteous people. Violence is going on. That there's strife, there's people killing each other because of a disagreement and this. You turn on um, the news, it's horrible. Where we were living at before, they had a murder almost every day. And that was a small town of less than the size of Green Bay. I mean, it's horrible, the violence that's going on. You know, we even have it worse because we have social media and the people will fight. You know, you almost have to be careful who you're friends with because they'll set up a big argument. You know, so-and-so likes this candidate. So-and-so likes this candidate. Oh, if you like this person, then you're, ah, you know, and people are fighting. You know, in our country today, we have such a schism. I don't know if it's ever going to be repaired with those of a liberal mindset and those of a conservative mindset. And it's getting worse and worse every day. And it's going to break out to violence. It's going to break out in all kinds of things. You have Muslim terrorists and everything else. Literally, it's almost like Habakkuk is praying in the same kind of conditions we are. Now, as a good man of God, he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's praying to God and saying, God, do you not see the violence? Don't you see the horrible things that's going on? Don't you see? What are you going to do about it? Now, like most of us that pray... We don't very much expect, we're not expecting, God to answer in an audible voice. That'd probably just scare scare us to death. So Habakkuk's praying, and he's doing what he's supposed to, and he's talking about the Lord, to the Lord, and he's explaining, look at the violence, do something. God, you've got to do something with our nation. You've got to do something about it. You've got to do something, please. And God said, all right, let me tell you what I'm going to do. Okay, verse number five, God is speaking. God is answering his prayer. He says, behold, ye among the heathen. That statement right there was enough to make Habakkuk's blood turn cold. You know what he said? He said, and he's going to explain it in the next couple chapters. Habakkuk, I've heard your prayer. So you know what I'm going to do to heal your nation? I'm going to send you into captivity. I'm going to send the Babylonians to come and destroy your nation. How you like that? Thanks for praying. It wasn't the answer that he was looking for. In fact, in verse 6, he says, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. He says, 
God's honest and says, you know what I'm going to do about this prayer request, Habakkuk? I'm sending the Babylonians to come and destroy your nation. That's the answer to your prayers. That wasn't what Habakkuk was looking for. In fact, God knows that. Notice again in verse number 5. Behold, ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously. Why? For I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told to you. God says, I've got a plan, and if I was to tell you the plan right now, you would say there's no way that's going to work. But God says, don't worry. I'm the God of history. I know how it's going to work out. I know this is what's best. That this isn't what you would have chosen, but this is what I chose for you. And this is the best. Now, Habakkuk is jaw-dropped. He is wondering marvelously and says, I didn't expect this. This was not the answer to prayer that I was looking for. This is not how I expected you to work. I was expecting for you to change hearts and make everyone happy and everyone get along. But God says, no, no, no. The problem is not the violence. The problem is not the strife. The problem is not the courts. The problem is not this. Let me tell you what the problem is. It's the hearts of mankind. It's the hearts of your people. Maybe I need to do a little recap of Israelite history so you can understand what the true heart of the matter is. God raised up a man by the name of Abraham and he called Abraham to himself out of the Ur of Chaldees to follow into a nation that he knew not. And of course, Abraham had a son of promise by the name of Isaac. Isaac had a son by the name of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And out of these 12 sons, uh, they came the rest of Israel. Of course, they were brought into the land of Egypt. And for 400 years, they stayed in Egypt till God raised up a man by the name of Moses who delivered the people out. Now, as they're preparing to go into the land, God has specific commands. Destroy all of the Canaanites. Why? Because they serve false gods. And God said this, that if you do not destroy the Canaanites out of the land, you will begin to serve other gods. You're going to start serving other gods. And guess what? The Israelites failed to get rid of the Canaanites and they begin to serve other gods. Do you know why people have polytheism, the belief in many gods? Because they have the idea that one God is not powerful enough to take care of everything. So they break down their gods into the God of thunder, the God of fertility, the God of this and the God of that. So that way one God can take care of this small little thing, this one little division. Our God is able to oversee everything. But sometimes our God doesn't answer the way or the timing that we expect Him to. And so if you're a farmer and you're expecting crops, and this is how you live, and the rain doesn't come, and you pray to Jehovah God over and over, but you get desperate, you start praying to Baal, the thunder God, and say, all right, Baal, I'll try you. And you bring the thunder and the lightnings and whatever else. And so they begin to serve other gods. And because they begin to serve other gods, their heart began to slide away from the true God. And once they're no longer looking at God... Everything else is allowed. All the other sins. You look at Solomon. Solomon started off with God talking to him twice. 
Imagine what it would be like that God showed up and spoke to you twice. And yet, his heart went away from God and he began to serve other gods. You look at these other people. This was Israel's problem, is they kept serving other gods other than the true God. You read the Old Testament, that is the overlying theme, that time and time and time again, they would let their hearts slip away from God and they would serve other gods. And when their hearts slipped away from God, they begin to allow other sins in their life. You know why? Because the only thing that makes anything wrong is that God said it's wrong. So you switch to a different God, and that God no longer says drinking's wrong, that God no longer says gambling's wrong, that God no longer says this is wrong, or this is wrong, and this is wrong. And guess what? You could do all of those things and not feel guilty about it. Because your God allows it, and it causes a corruption in the nation. And they would have revivals, they would have reforms, but the hearts of men kept going back to other gods. This was the main problem. We could see a lot of symptoms to the problem, but the main problem is that their hearts kept getting away from God. And so God's looking at the big picture. Habakkuk just wants everyone to get along. But God says, I want to work on their hearts so they serve me and they serve me alone. So you know how I'm going to solve this problem? Ye among the heathen. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans and they're going to conquer you and you're going to live under slavery and bondage for 70 years and that's going to fix them. What's worse, the Babylonians serve even more gods than they do. Does that make sense? That the way to cure someone's problem with serving too many gods is to put them in a place where they serve even more gods. Habakkuk brings up that objection and says, God, they're more evil than what we are. That's what you're going to do to solve it? I don't understand. God says, I told you you wouldn't understand. I told you that it wouldn't make sense. I told you that if I were to told you, behold ye among the heathen in regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. You know, we have a God who knows the end from the beginning. He knows exactly how it's supposed to work. By the way, this is just introduction. I'm going to get into the message in just a second. Think about salvation. If you were to somehow get the smartest men in all of the world and all of the history, and you were to put them in, the room, in a room and say, I want you to find a way to have men forgiven. What would they come up with? Probably something about uh, confessing your sins to a priest or maybe doing some great works. And if you do enough good works, it'll outweigh your bad. But none of these intelligent men would ever come up with the idea that God himself would robe himself in flesh and he would die for us. That would be something beyond our comprehension. That would be something beyond what we could think of for ourselves. That God would die for us. God says, I'm going to do something that's going to make you wonder and you wouldn't believe though it be told of you. But it's going to work. Why? Because God knows what he's doing. Now as I describe this God of history, let me show you a couple things from the Bible. We're going to turn back to Habakkuk in just a second. But the first thing I'd like to show you is that God sees all of history. That God sees all of history. For that, turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 41. Now we're coming back to Habakkuk, so if you want to keep a finger there or put a pen there or do something there. But we're coming back to Habakkuk in just a second, just a bit. 
But the first thing I'd like to show you is that God sees all of history. God knows and can sit on the throne and be calm because he sees everything that's going to happen. He already knows what's going to happen. It doesn't catch him by surprise. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to God? God knows everything. Notice, if you wouldn't mind, in Isaiah 41 and verse 21. Isaiah 41 and verse 21. It says, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show them what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they may be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things to come show us the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods yea do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and behold it all together behold ye are nothing and your work of naught an abomination is he that choseth you now god is having a little god off here and he's talking to these false priests and he says hey if your god's real Tell us something that he predicted. Tell us, predict something now. Predict something that's going to happen that we can watch and see if it comes to pass. Come on, do something. Here, why don't you tell us something your God predicted before and we can see if it came to pass. And God says, you're foolish because you can't even stand up for your own God. And your God's stupid too, by the way. You know why God can say that? Because God sees everything. God knows what's going to happen. He sees the end from the beginning. Our God is able to predict and it's able to come true because God sees everything that's going to happen. That's a wonderful thing about our God is He's omniscient. He sees all time at once. He sees everything that's going to happen. You know, the same time as God is watching this service right now, He's watching the children of Israel cross the Red Sea. The same time as he's watching this service right now, he's watching the millennium kingdom unfold. God sees it all at once. All of history is laid out before his eyes. Do you know that God is bigger than time? God started time. He saw the beginning of time. He sees the end of time. Do you know that time has an end? It does have an end. There's going to be a time where time will be no more. That's when we enter eternity future. We have before then a millennium kingdom, a thousand year reign of Christ. But time has a definite beginning and it will have a definite end. And God holds all of that time in his hand and he sees it all at once. We have a God who sees all of history. Which he doesn't just see history. But the second thing I want to bring to your attention is that God controls all of history. God controls all of history. Turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to the book of Isaiah and chapter 44. So just the next page for some of you. Isaiah 44. I love history. I'm a history buff. The book of Isaiah is written about 700 B.C. For some of you who are trying to keep track, about 700 B.C. as a rough guesstimate. And notice with me Isaiah 44, and we're going to look towards the end, verse number 26. Isaiah 44 and verse 26, the Bible says this, "...that confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof." 
that saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure. Even to the saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates that shall not be shut. I will go before thee, and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass, and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee treasures of darkness." and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which are called thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. Now God is making a very specific prophecy. In this prophecy, he brings up that Jerusalem is going to have to be rebuilt. In 700 B.C., Israel, uh, Jerusalem hasn't been destroyed yet. Jerusalem will be destroyed, as we were seeing in Habakkuk, in 586 B.C. 586 B.C., Jerusalem will be destroyed. This prophecy is made in about 700 um, B.C., so you have about a hundred and so years before Jerusalem is destroyed. And it talks about that Jerusalem is going to have to be rebuilt. Then it brings up a man by the name of Cyrus. And verse number 28, and then again in verse 1 uh, of the next chapter. Cyrus, is, uh, as the world knows in the history books, is Cyrus the Great. The first emperor of the Persian Empire. And in 536 B.C., so approximately about 200 years after this prophecy is made, God specifically lays out that a man by the name of Cyrus is going to destroy the Babylonians. Now that's a pretty specific prophecy that you actually called what his name is before he's even born. Cyrus is actually one of four people in the Bible that was called by name before they were conceived. And Cyrus was the only Gentile. Cyrus, as far as we know, never accepted Jesus as his Savior. But yet God says, this is my shepherd. This is my instrument. This is who I'm going to use. A man by the name of Cyrus. Notice what it says as a specific prophecy in chapter number 45. Right there where we're at. Uh, Verse 44, he says that Cyrus is going to be used to rebuild the temple. By the way, Cyrus did do that. You see that in Ezra chapter 1 and the last chapter of, of 2 Chronicles. Cyrus actually gave money to the Jewish people and said, Go back, rebuild Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. God says this is exactly what he's going to do. And verse 1, chapter 45, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord to... Uh, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. By the way, he did conquer nations. And I will loose the loins of the kings. He did that. We see that fulfilled in Daniel. To open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Now, Babylon is, is built on the Euphrates River. And... This is a mighty river that flows through Babylon. And what Cyrus the Great did is he conquered all the nations around Babylon, left Babylon alone, the people held within the walls. The mighty walls of Babylon, they uh, thought they were impenetrable. The walls were so thick that you could ride 
two teams of horse-drawn carriages with four horses each. That means eight horses. And you could ride them four, uh, two chariots, uh, four horses apiece, eight horses side by side along the top of the walls. That's how thick the walls were that you could race chariots on the top of it. And they stood 400 feet high. This is a city that said no one can conquer us. No one could beat us. Well, what Cyrus the Great did is he went upriver of the Euphrates River. I think it, you know, it was Tigris River, forgive me. And he dams up the river and diverts it. And so when we see in the book of Daniel, Belshazzar having his party and he sees the handwriting on the wall. You remember that story in the book of Daniel? What is happening is that Cyrus does the last diversion of the river and that river dries up during the night. Cyrus and his army go to the two-leaved gate, that's what the Bible said, that actually runs underneath the city where the river runs through the gate. They have a gate there so no one can swim under it. And they go to the two-leaved gates, and the guards that's supposed to be watching the gates, they see the river dry up, they know the army's coming, and they say, you know what, we'd rather not be in this fight. So they open the gates up, and they leave. So Cyrus and his army walk in the dry riverbed, go underneath the two-leaved gates, show up in the city in the middle of the night, and take the city of Babylon without firing a shot. Just like the Bible said. 200 years before the event, that's exactly what happened. By the way, in the book of Daniel, when he told uh, Belshazzar, he said, this night, this night, you're done being king. Exactly what God said. God knew exactly what was happening. He was watching Cyrus, but he wasn't just watching Cyrus. Notice with me in verse number 2, I, this is God, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in the pieces of the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I will give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. You know, we have a God who just doesn't see history. He watches He controls history. You know, I personally believe that God laid it on the hearts of those guards to say, you know what, forget this and open up the gates. And God was working behind the scenes. He was opening up the doors. He was preparing things. It is no wonder that Belshazzar is having that party and he sees the handwriting on the wall. God is in control. He's already preparing. He's already working on things. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He controls all of history. We have a God who's sitting on the throne, He's in control, and He knows what we need the best. You know what God is going to do? In Habakkuk's time, God says, Behold, ye among the heathen. He is going to take the people, and He's going to put them in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Cyrus the Great is going to come and deliver them from the people he's going to pay them money and give them money and say go rebuild the temple go home and go serve your god and you know when the jewish people return they become the most monotheistic people that ever existed you could go to an orthodox jew today and you know what they say there is only one god before the babylonian captivity they wouldn't they served every other god but god After the Babylonian captivity, there's only one God. There's only one God. You know what God did? God fixed them. 
And he did it in a way that we wouldn't have chosen, that we would have figured out. He did it in a way that made them know that there was only one true God. Isn't that an amazing God? He knows what our problems are. He knows what the problems of people are. And he knows how to fix it. And it may not be the way that you and I think it should be. But God knows exactly what to do. Now turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Now I believe that the best application is a Bible application. So let's see from the book of Habakkuk, how do we respond to the God of history? Knowing that God is sitting on the throne. Knowing that God sees all of time at once. Knowing that God controls history. He's able to move things and move events and put them in the way they should be. How do we respond to the God of history? What is our response? May I show you how we should respond to this God? Notice with me in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 1. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 1. What is our reaction? The first thing is obedience. The first thing is obedience. Chapter 2 verse 1. I will stand upon my watch. Habakkuk is speaking again. I will stand upon my watch and set me on a tower and watch to see what he, God, will say unto me and what I shall answer when I'm approved. God has this conversation with Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, you got to do something about our nation. Our nation's being destroyed. The people's, there's violence, the judgments, the courts, everything's going, going crazy. And God says, all right, Habakkuk, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the Babylonians come and they're going to kidnap you and send you away and destroy your nation. And Habakkuk says, wait, 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 wait. That's not what I asked for. But when he got over that, in chapter 2, verse 1, he goes to a tower and he says, all right, God, I'm going to wait here until you tell me what to do. You know what his response was? It was obedience. You just tell me what to do, God, and I'll do it. You know, if you truly believe that God is in control then you can trust what God is going to tell you what to do. He knows exactly how things are going to work out. We just need to obey. How many times do we get in the way of God's plan because we're disobedient? That God says, I want this accomplished, just do this, and you fight and you fuss and say it doesn't make any sense, and we delay things, we mess it up, we whatever else. If we would just obey, God can get his work accomplished. We just need to have a response of obedience. Do you trust God enough just to obey what he tells you to do? What's the second response? What's the second thing we should do? Notice with me in verse number 4, chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. That phrase, the just shall live by faith, became the Apostle Paul's life verse. What's our second response? The just shall live by faith. We need to live by faith. We need to trust God. Now in this passage, it's very interesting. If you were to say, what is the opposite of faith? Most people would say disbelief. But that's not what this passage says. Notice with me chapter 2 verse 4 again. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright. In him, but the just shall live by his faith. If you're writing things down, write this down. The opposite of faith is pride. The opposite of faith is pride. You are either trusting God or you're trusting something else. That's simple. We don't like it that simple, do we? 
You're either trusting in God or you're trusting in something else. That is pride. Pride is when you're not trusting in God. You're not putting God in His rightful place. You're either living by faith, saying, God, you show me what to do and I'll do it, or you're trusting yourself. Have you ever tried to do things yourself? Tried to make it work? Tried to get a, a square, a circle peg through a square hole, pounding it in, forcing it in? You either live your life by force or you live your life by faith. You either live your life trusting in God or you live your life fighting and manipulating and twisting and arguing and pounding and trying to make it work. You know, if you just let God do it, it becomes so much easier. The just shall live by faith. What's another reaction? How should we respond to this God of history? We we should respond with obedience. We need to know that the just shall live by faith. Notice chapter 3 and verse 2. Chapter 3 and verse 2, we have another response. Chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of years, the years. In the midst of the years, make known. Notice this phrase, in wrath, remember mercy. Here he's saying, God, give us revival. Do you know where revival comes oftentimes? By God's wrath. Notice in history and in the Bible, when the judgment of God comes, often comes a revival. When God gets our attention, we finally say, yes, sir. You know, we need to trust God that he knows what he's doing. Someone may say, what a horrible thing to allow the Babylonians to come and destroy Jerusalem. What kind of God is that anyways? He's a God who knew what it took to revive his people, to bring his people back to himself. Hey, there may be something that needs to happen in our nation to get those who call themselves Christians back to him. There may be a tragedy that needs to happen in someone's personal life to bring that person back to him. But remember, in wrath, remember mercy. You know, God knows what he's doing. The second most famous Bible verse in all the world would be problem, probably Romans 8.28, where it says, For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. You know, Romans 8.28 makes more sense when you add the next verse with it, verse 29. It says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. You know what the Bible says? You know why all, uh, all things work together for good? Now, not all things are good, but all things work together for good. You know why things happen in our life? Verse 29, to make us more like Jesus. You know, God can do things in our life, and He's doing it for our good. You know, some people get so bitter with God over things. I was in a car accident, and why did God let it happen? Because God was trying to make you more like Him. Can you trust Him? Can you trust Him? Habakkuk says, I know, understand now that you have to bring judgment and that you've got a purpose for it. But God in wrath, remember mercy. Put revival in the midst of years. Use this chance to bring your people back to yourself. God, we know that all things work together for good to them that love you to them that are thee called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. You know why some things happen in your life? 
They may not all be good, but God is trying to use them for good to make you more like Jesus. God has a purpose. Can you trust him? We've got a God who's sitting on the throne. You know, we may feel like panicking. Ever lost a job? Figure out what am I going to do? How am I going to survive? God's not up there panicking. He says, I've got things handled. I've got things taken care of. You ever have one of those days where everything goes wrong and then your tire blows out on top of it? You may say, God knows what he's doing. God has it in hand. God knows how to take care of it. You ever have a need and you figure out how in the world I'm going to get this get done? God knows what he's doing. He's got everything well in hand. Everything's all right in my father's house. In my father's house. In my father's house. Everything's all right in my father's house. There'll be joy, joy, joy. You need to recognize that God knows what he's doing. You know, there may be some things that come in your life that you may have not have chosen and you wouldn't have done it that way. But can you trust that God knows what he's doing? One last response. How should we respond knowing that God is the God of all of history? We should be ready to obey. We should be uh, understanding that the just shall live by faith. Can you trust him? We should have the idea that God is always working, that God's got a plan and he's putting things in our life to make us more like him. One last principle. I call it living in the yet. Living in the yet. Notice with me in Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 18. It's, uh, let me go advance back a little bit. Verse 16. When I heard my belly trembled and my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones and I trembled at myself that I might rest in the day of trouble when he cometh into the people and will invade them with his troops. Notice verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, Neither shall fruit be in the vines, and the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, and the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Verse 17 says things are bad. There's no food, there's no finances, there's no health. He says, although these things, although everything fails, notice verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And then he'll go on and talks about singing and the instruments and makes them walk on the high places to the chief singer on the string instruments. He says, I can still sing. He says, even though everything will fall, my finances fall. I have no more food. The health fails. Yet, yet, I will still rejoice in God. That's called living in the yet. You get that when you trust in God. Oftentimes when people go through hard times, I'll ask them this simple question. Do you still got a song? Can you still sing? You know, there's something wrong, something bad wrong when Christians don't sing. There's something bad wrong in here. The Bible talks about that the number one thing that's associated with a brand new life is a brand new song. And if a Christian can't sing, by the way, I'm a preacher and the song leader, I see who sings and not. But it's a bad thing when Christians don't sing. 
Because we have a reason to sing. We can trust in our God. And we have this principle of living in the yet. That if you trust God, and you believe that God's sitting on the throne, and you believe that He's not panicking, but He's got everything in hand, that even though things may fall apart in your life, yet I will still sing and rejoice in the God of my salvation. Because God is sitting on the throne. And He knows exactly what's going to work out. He knows exactly what's going to happen. We have that good of a God. Can you still sing? God didn't promise us that everything was going to be a bed of roses. He didn't promise us that as soon as you get saved that everything's going to be all right. In fact, just the opposite. You know what life is? It's a life of hills and valleys. Good times, bad times. You know what Jesus said? I came to give you life more abundantly. Higher hills, deeper valleys. Higher hills, deeper valleys. That's what He promised you. But the other thing that He said is that yet, you can live in the yet. That even though those things fall apart, yet you can still sing. Yet you can still rejoice. Yet you can still trust that God knows what He's doing. Can you trust Him? Now, He doesn't reveal His plans. You may say, why in the world is this happening? Can you still sing? Do you still trust God? Do you believe it that God is on the throne? God knows what he's doing. And we just have to go back to simple faith and trust in him. Can you still trust him? Do you believe that do you believe what I'm telling you tonight that God is on the throne? There may be someone who may not believe it, and, and I understand. But I'm asking, do you believe it? Then if you believe it, then you should respond properly. Can you obey whatever God tells you? You know, sometimes I deal with people and they say, you know, preacher, I just can't afford to tithe. That doesn't make any sense. They said, why would God ask me to have money when I can't afford to pay this? Can you trust Him? If you believe that God's on the throne, can you obey Him and God take care of these things? God knows what He's doing. Can you live by faith? Say, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to keep going forward. I'm going to take another step and I'm going to trust you. Can you say, you know what? These bad things happened to me, but God knows what He's doing. God wasn't mean when He allowed the tire to blow. God wasn't picking on me the day when my electricity thing didn't work out. You know, God wasn't just mad and thought He would just laugh at someone when I had a bill come in that I wasn't expecting. God knows what He's doing. You understand that God's using those things to make us more like Him. And then, can you live in the yet? That's one of the biggest ways that you show, can you trust God? Can you still sing? Can you still rejoice? Can you still say that God is right and God is good? Those are proper responses when you see that God is sitting on the throne. He is indeed the God of history. He's in control of it. He knows what he's doing. Just let him be God and watch him work. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, I'm just praying that this is an encouragement, not because of anything that I say, but because we have a real, living, true God who's on the throne. 
I thank you, Lord, that you make no mistake. I thank you that you know what you're doing. And when we're tried, we shall come forth as gold. Lord, I'm thankful you know exactly what you're doing. Maybe there's something.